One of my favorite, one of my favorite Christmas uh, movies is uh, Scrooge by George C. Scott as the star. Um, I like any variation on the the, the the story The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, but that one is my favorite, and I don't know why. It just it just it grips me. But there's a there's a statement that takes that Charles Dickens wrote in his book that is quoted in just about every single um, version of The Christmas Carol, whether it's an audio recording or a movie. And that is this statement. It, it's, it's how it begins. It's how the story begins. It says, Marley was dead to begin with. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. Let me read that to you one more time. The words of Charles Dickens talking about Scrooge. Marley was dead to begin with. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. What in the world does that have to do with God and the church and the book of Isaiah? If you will turn with me to Isaiah chapter 45... And we're actually going to start back in 43, I mean, 44, verse 21. And we'll read through this in just a few minutes. But before I do read this, you'll need to know that in these verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, a person is specifically named. Does anybody have any idea who that person is? Starts with a C. Look at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, or Isaiah 45, verse 1. Cyrus. Who was Cyrus? He was a Persian of Babylonia. Persian. He was the Persian ruler. He was the ruler of Persia, the king of Persia. What does he have to do with the story of Isaiah and, and the people of Israel and the Jewish people? They ruled over the people of Israel, but it wasn't in Isaiah's time later. It was exactly 210 years between the writing of Isaiah and the ruling of Cyrus the Persian. He's, also, he's actually known as Cyrus the Great. And um, his tomb is located in Iran. You can see it to this day if ISIS hasn't destroyed it yet. Um, there's also what's called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is a clay, kind of looks like a corn cob almost, and it was found in the city of Babylon during an archaeological dig. It had been broken into pieces, and the archaeologists were able to put it back together again. And it was written in cuneiform, which is a system of wedges that they press into clay, and that's how they would write. And in the cuneiform writing that's on the Cyrus cylinder are these words. Turn with me to Second Chronicles. Hold on just a second. The problem with having a brand new Bible is the gold siding on the paper always sticks. 
2 Chronicles chapter 36. And we're at the very tail end of chapter 36. It's actually the last paragraph of the whole book. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. The Cyrus uh, cylinder. Okay. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now just turn the page and go to the first chapter of Ezra. Okay? Let's read these first, the first chapter of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Didn't we just kind of read this? That's because Chronicles was a collection of other writings. And it was a history that was put together. And so this portion of Ezra came part of 2 Chronicles. Okay? Thus says the king, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among all you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each let excuse me, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of the place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And it goes on. We don't have time this morning to read all about the different things that they gave back. But basically, everything that had been stolen by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, when they pillaged Jerusalem, destroyed and burned the temple, and took all of the, the Israelites into exile, the Jewish people into exile, for 70 years, all of those things were kept in storehouses in Babylon. And when Cyrus came into power over Babylon, the king of Persia, he then under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, gave it back to the people to carry back and to restock the temple. Okay? Now, a couple things you need to know history-wise so that this all makes sense. Okay, first of all, why are the Hebrew people, the children of Abraham, why are they called Jews to this day? I'm sorry? They're from Judea. Why does that mean anything? Okay, I don't know if you could hear what he said. The, the northern kingdom, when there was the split after Solomon's death, the northern kingdom was the ten tribes, the southern kingdom was the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and the northern kingdom became known as Samaria, the southern king became known as Judah, 
Benjamin was part of it, but it was Judah. And the end result was, as we've been reading this story, if you remember back to the beginnings of our time in Isaiah, Assyria was the world power at the beginning. And Assyria took out the northern kingdom and dispersed them, broke up the nation and scattered the people all over the place. Okay? So all that was left of the Jewish, I mean of the Hebrew people were those that were living in Judea. The Jew, the, uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> help me. What tribe? Judah. Thank you. The tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, beat out the Assyrian king. And so Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Bab- the Babylonian kingdom became the world power. And Isaiah, as we've been learning, has been prophesying that there's going to come a time, O Israelites, O Judahites, you're going to be carried off into exile because of your disobedience. And that time does indeed come. Nebuchadnezzar's army comes and destroys Jerusalem, burning the temple, pillaging all of the stuff, and carries the people of Judah as a unit and sets them in Babylon. So now, then, Nebuchadnezzar has his history. You can read about it in the book of Daniel. And then after him comes his son. And then after him comes his son. And then comes a guy named Belshazzar. I think that was his name. And there's this writing on the wall that happens. Because he is literally defaming God's name by drinking out of the vessels from the temple with his party. He had all of these things brought out from the storehouses of Babylon and had all of his lords and ladies drinking drunken, singing drunken songs that they held up the holy grails, basically, if you will. And then all of a sudden, the supernatural hand comes and carves into the clay wall many, many teclaparsin, which means your days are numbered. Well, history tells us that And we don't know that it was actually right then at that party, but scholars do believe that it really was at that party, that somebody let the Persians in. Because, see, Babylon was surrounded by these bronze gates and iron pegs that kept the bronze bronze gates closed, and they had literally bricked up the river that flowed into um, Babylon. And so they had all these precautions around it so that it couldn't be forded through. Well, literally, the historians believe Cyrus diverted the water into a lake bed, drying up that river, and bringing his army in in the dark of night, and taking over all of Babylon, and defeating Belshazzar as a result of his disobedience. So Cyrus, the Persian, is now... Cyrus, the king of the world, whose headquarters is in Babylon. And the thing that's interesting about this is if you look at the history of Cyrus, Cyrus's heart was he didn't take his people, his people that he had conquered or the people that were under him, and disperse them like the Assyrians did. And he didn't displace people that he had conquered and pull them into places where they were not familiar and didn't have resources available to them so that they could be controlled. He literally, Cyrus, literally his philosophy, his way of governing was to say to the people who had been taken over by Babylon and Assyria, go home. Go worship your God. 
Build up your place of worship again. Establish yourselves back in your land. And so the Judahites were sent back to Judah. And to this day, those people are known as Jews. That's how we got the term Jew for Hebrew people. The people, the children of Abraham. Because of the Cyrus releasing them and sending them back to Jerusalem. Now, the thing that's, that's the history. I mean, these, these are all verifiable facts. You can go and look it up on Wikipedia and see that it's all real. Okay, no, really, truly, you can look at Josephus' writings, you can look at any historical stuff, you can go to museums and read about it. It's, this is the history, okay? Now, the reality, and then, and then following Cyrus, there was a man named Darius who became the king, and then you get into the, the lion's den and the, the golden statue, and if you don't you know, worship the golden statue, blah, 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 and you can't pray for 30 days. It's all out of Daniel, okay? But this Cyrus played an integral role in the world scene, and he was part of the, 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 the history of the people of, of Judea, the, the Jewish people, but specifically in this book in Isaiah, in this chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah, the last few verses of 44, and the first few verses, uh, first 13 verses of 45, Cyrus is specifically mentioned. But just like I said about Marley being dead to begin with, and if you don't get that, nothing else wondrous can be understood. You need to understand that when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, and specifically named Cyrus. It was 210 years before Cyrus was in power. Imagine, to bring it into our own understanding, okay? If you were to look at the history of the United States, and this was just recently in the news, it's one of those, they're trying to disrupt the world things, but in the news, it literally said that until just recently, the most wealthy person to ever serve as President of the United States was George Washington. George Washington was the most wealthy person to ever serve as President of the United States until this year. Okay? Now, let's bring this, today's thing with George Washington and President Trump into this understanding of the, co the co correlation between Isaiah and Cyrus. Imagine if during President Washington's tenure of office, he wrote out something, he said, I can't explain it, but I have a sense from God Almighty that there's going to come a time when there will be a person who is wealthier than me who will serve as the President of the United States and he will do everything he can to make the nation great again and I have a sense that it has something to do with the name Trump. And he wrote it down. Well, do you know how long ago George Washington was the president of the United States? 230-ish years ago. So literally, two centuries plus, if he were to have written that prophecy about some guy someday being richer than him, coming to become... Uh, helping the United States become great again as the President of the United States, and his name was Trump. How, how likely is that? How likely is it that that could have even possibly happened? 
But that's exactly what happened with the prophecy in Isaiah. Now, I will tell you, because if you take the time to read anything about this section of Isaiah, there are scholars who cannot accept that Isaiah could have possibly prophetically named Cyrus. They think that that part of Isaiah was written at the same time Cyrus was doing all of this stuff, and it was just a history, not a prophecy. I, one of the people who wrote the Beacon Bible Commentary from the 1960s, which is the Church of the Nazarene's Commentary back then, and for 40 plus years, it was the Church of the Nazarene's Commentary, and I was so surprised that he said the same thing. That this was not talking about Cyrus, the king of Persia, but it was talking about the Christ who was coming. And I'm like, what? Because why would, why would people struggle with this? Not just the prophetic issue, but why would people struggle with this? Because Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, calls Cyrus the anointed one. In Hebrew, Mashiach. How in the world could a pagan, someone who doesn't even understand or know about the real God, be the anointed one, the Mashiach? That's only the King of David line. And then ultimately, the Mashiach, Jesus Christ. So see, there are people who struggle with this idea of this pagan who doesn't know anything about God being called the Mashiach. But that's the dilemma we're faced with. And I will have to tell you, I don't know enough to be able to definitively say what I believe one way or the other. I wish that I did. I just haven't got enough understanding or study done to make any kind of a definitive statement. But I lean towards trusting God and trusting that God could, in his omnipotence, impart knowledge to a prophet who was listening carefully and giving the prophet the ability to name the individual. That's, just, that's my, my infantile belief system at work here. No scholarly stuff, just taking it at gut level. I believe God can do that. Now, knowing what Jewish culture and law was, if a prophet declares thus, says the Lord, and it never comes to happen, that prophet is subject to death. So that's kind of a scary thing for this prophet Isaiah to be writing the name of some guy. But thankfully it was 200 years in the future, and so he died long before it could ever not be proven true, and so there we go. He's safe. So that's the history, that's the background, that's the understanding. So let's read these words real quickly. We're going to read about 15 or 20 verses. And then we'll talk for a little bit about the meaning and what it is. Okay, so turn with me again. Isaiah chapter 44. Starting in verse uh, 21. And then we're going to read through Isaiah 45, verse 13. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turn wise men back and make their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. See that? What is God saying there? He says to his messenger, he, he says, he confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Again, this was written 210 years before it actually happened. Who says to the deep, be dry, I dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, now, there's some thought about scholars about whether or not that dry up rivers is the incident where Cyrus dried up the river in Babylon to gain access so that he could overthrow the Babylonian government. Who, who says of Cyrus, verse 28, He is my shepherd. This is God saying of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, Your, shall, your foundation shall be laid. 210 years Naming specifically Cyrus being the one who says Jerusalem shall be rebuilt and the temple's foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord, moving into chapter 45 now. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, okay, the Mashiach Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him. Stop. What is this loose the belts of kings? When a, when a warrior at that time would go into battle, they would gird up their loins by grabbing their robes and tucking them into their belt so that they could run in the battle. So what God is saying here is, what I did to your enemies was I loosed their belts so that they would trip up on their gowns so that you could be victorious, Cyrus. So God says to the anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to loose the belts of other kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break into pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Hear the imagery about the defenses of the city of Babylon. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. The wealth of the temple that was taken from Jerusalem is going to be placed in treasure houses or storerooms in, in, in Babylon. And God is saying to Cyrus, the anointed one, I'm going to give you access to all of this. And why? That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. 
that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, verse 7 is key to understanding this, this, this word of God through the prophet Isaiah to Cyrus. Why would light and darkness, well-being and calamity or chaos be important words to somebody who was from Persia? You don't know because you haven't studied this. I know because I studied this. What this is, if you remember at the time of Jesus' birth, actually a couple years after his birth, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews. We know them as the wise men, or we three kings, but it literally says in the Bible, magi from the east. What were magi? Magi were the priests, if you will, or the astronomers, or the, the cult leaders of what is now known in, as, as a religion as Zoroastrianism. I can't say it correctly. Zoroastrianism. And this belief system was that there were two beings, two deities, one that controlled light and good and right, and the other one that controlled dark and evil and chaos. And whichever one was prominent at whatever given point in time, that's why there would be good going on or bad going on. That's why evil would come into your life because the dark one had power over the light one. And then eventually the light one would come back. And that was their belief system. Cyrus's religion taught him Light and dark is controlled by two entities bringing good and bad into your life. And what is God saying through the prophet of Isaiah to 200 years in the future to a man who believed that? He says in verse 7 of Isaiah 30, 45, I formed light. I create darkness. I make well-being. I create chaos or calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. As they say in England, full stop. If you just take a little bit of time to look at chapters 45 verses 1 through 7, you can break it apart this way. The first three verses talk about the mission of Cyrus being accomplished because of God's help. Verse 4, the mission of Cyrus is accomplished for the sake of God's people. Verse 6, the mission of Cyrus would be accomplished so that all people, including Cyrus, might know that the Lord alone is God. These first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 45, God is speaking through his prophet directly to Cyrus, the anointed one. The one who had the power to release the people and let them go back to Judah to rebuild the temple. The next few verses are now addressed to the people of Judah who are in exile, who have been 
in this prophetic uttering. They've been 70 years in exile just before Cyrus is coming. And let's look at that. Verses um, 8 through 13. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Woe to the one who strives with the one who formed him. What does that say? People, what are you doing fighting against me? He says, you're a pot among earthen pots. He's talking to the people of Judah. Does the clay say to the one who formed it, what are you making? Or, your work doesn't have any handles. Woe to the one who says to the father, what are you begetting? Or says to the woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created humans on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. And I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. And if you were reading the New International Version, this is verse 13, it will say, I have stirred Cyrus up in righteousness. And I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. What God is saying to his people is, I have a plan. And I'm giving you the information about that plan 210 years before it actually comes to play. So you can establish your faith and your trust in me. And the reality is, you're going to look at all of that and go, what in the world is this? This doesn't make sense to me. How in the world is God supposed to bring about a pagan to be the anointed one? That doesn't make sense. That's not how it's done. And God is declaring to these people through the prophet Isaiah, this is what you're going to be doing in 200 plus 10 years. Hello, dummies. Can you not just put blind faith and trust and hope in me? I want to read to you a quote out of one of my commentaries. It was written by a man named Webb on these verses. He said, sadly, though, God's people do not share his enthusiasm. They cannot see past the fact that Cyrus is a pagan. And because God's chosen way of working doesn't fit their own notions of what is proper, they can't rejoice in it. They're trapped in small-mindedness. How absurd their narrowness of vision is, and how tragic, for it shuts them out from oneness with God and from the joy that should be theirs. As I read those words during my study time, they jumped off the page at me. It is not my place to tell God, the Omnipotent One, the omniscient one, the omnipresent one, what his plan should or should not be. It is my job to worship him. It is my job to proclaim him 
to the people around me. It is his job to set the place, the time, the plan, and how things are supposed to happen. A clear and perfect example of that is what this congregation just went through for the last 11 months. In March of 2016, we had the Department of Public Health come into this room and announce that there was a potential health hazard in this area dealing with arsenic in the ground. And then we had our well tested and found out we were indeed one of those who had arsenic in the ground. And your leadership team of this church got on their faces before God and said, what are we supposed to do about this, God? Ain't nothing we can do about it. We don't have the kind of money. We don't have nothing. But literally, I remember distinctly hearing people say in that board meeting, we are going to trust God. We don't know how he's going to work it out, but we're going to trust him. Eleven months later, I can testify, giving you the facts, that $9,000 plus dollars were spent putting in a building and a tank and the plumbing and the electrical and filling that tank with water so that the parsonage would have clean and healthy water for the family that lives there. And it costs this church zero. Now, if we go down to the nuts and bolts, Tanya, our treasurer, could tell you, well, there was actually maybe $100 that was donated by the people of this church towards that 9000 but the rest of it came in at no cost to this congregation. I can testify that I stood right out here by this fire escape outside of this sanctuary crying as I was told by a local contractor, no, we're going to do this because it's the right thing. We don't expect payment. I can tell you that I cried when I got the phone call from somebody that said, Pastor, I'm going to take care of the gravel and I'm going to take care of the concrete. You just tell me who to write the checks to. I cried when I said, I don't know what we're going to do. We were standing in this room making decisions, and people in this congregation raised their hands and said, I have the skills, I'll take care of that part of it, and no, I don't expect any payment. How in the world could this congregation get what we got for free? Because we serve an omnipotent God who can do anything he chooses. He sets the plan. He sets the course. If he decides that this place closes up next week, that's his business. Glory to his name. Our whole purpose is the advancement of his kingdom. And we follow his leading. And we do what he tells us to do. And we listen carefully for his guidance. We don't act like these Judahites in Isaiah chapter 45 going, Well, why do you think you're doing, God? You didn't put any handles on that pot. That doesn't make sense. And let's bring it even down into our own personal lives. What in your life is beyond your control that you want changed, but you have to simply lay back and trust that God will handle it for you? Whatever it is that you're thinking about right now, when he starts to move, why do you question that way? Can't you just say, praise God, he's doing something. I don't have to understand it. I just have to know that God hears and sees and knows, and he's got a plan. 
And he's implementing that plan whether I ever see the end result or not. Lord God, you are my God. You are the sovereign of the universe. I submit my life to you. I consecrate my life to you 100%. I ask you to fill me with your presence. Let your Holy Spirit be present with me, empowering me for service, cleansing me from all carnality, and let me walk in faithfulness all the days of my life so that the people of this world will see my good deeds and glorify my Father which is in heaven. That's your response. That's how you need to live. That's what I believe God would have us to know from these short little verses about Cyrus. Marley was dead to begin with. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. Let's pray.